1: Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan. You can find out about my background at rajbalkharan.com slash academia. More importantly is my guest today. I have the pleasure of speaking with Jessica Vantine Birkenholz about her recent production, Reciting the Goddess, Narratives of Place and the Making of Hinduism in Nepal. Jessica, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you, Raj, for having me.
1: And I guess we should start off by mentioning that um, uh, Jessica has just recently accepted a position um, as associate professor at Penn State University. Um, It's a joint appointment in the departments of women's gender and sexuality and Asian studies. So exciting times for you, Jessica.
0: Yes,
1: busy, busy times. Busy times. So, Reciting the Goddess, Um, fascinating book. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this project.
0: Yeah, so um, the history of this project is is kind of a deep one um, that the, the seed, unbeknownst to myself at the time, was planted as an undergraduate um, during a study abroad program in Nepal. Um, and that was my junior year of undergraduate studies. And um, for that was the first time that I had been to Nepal and the first time that I heard about the goddess swastani and this tradition, the Swastani Vrata um, Kata, that celebrated for a month every year. And I started to do some preliminary research on it then, not having any inkling whatsoever that this was going to grow into really kind of a, a lifelong curiosity and interest, um, and so in graduate school, this the Susani Bharata Gatha, the textual component of this larger textual ritual goddess tradition revolving around um, this local Nepali goddess named Shastani, uh was the focus of my doctoral studies and dissertation, and then became the focus of, of this first book, Reciting the Goddess. Um, so it dates back quite a while, um, which I love and um, also have always been kind of interested in in how things my thinking on this project has changed over time and my kind of my own interaction with the goddess and and her tradition Um, but so it's the origin dates back a long period obviously my thinking about it evolved considerably as a graduate student, um, and even more so in the, the final stages of writing the book um, and and making um, changes to the book from what the dissertation had been um, to kind of bring it up to date and to broaden the conversation out to a wider audience um, and to, to think you know more broadly about what this particular goddess and her textual tradition, less so her ritual tradition, um, because the book is really focused more on the textual side of her, her practice, um, but what they mean to Nepalis, um, both Hindu Nepalis, Nepalis more generally, and Hindus in South Asia, um, Indian Hindus and kind of the study of Hinduism at large.
1: Well, there's certainly a lot of uh, broad themes that we'll we'll touch on, um, including uh, especially gender and place making, and and this and, and this thing called Hinduism that although we have a podcast dedicated to, we're not entirely sure what that is. And your book uh, um, book uh, provides some interesting uh, insights into the ongoing making of this thing called Hinduism. Maybe the first thing I want to touch on, um, I do want to touch on. So Stani, we're the goddess and, and and who is this goddess. Um before that, um I'd like to ask you two questions. You can answer them in either order. One is um tell us a bit about Nepal and Hinduism in Nepal. Some people may have a question mark about that. Um yeah but in terms of um yeah, Hinduism's relationship to Nepal or vice versa. And the other thing is you already mentioned this is a textual project, so you've you you've spent many in our knee-deep in in manuscripts. Maybe you could say a bit about either of those things.
0: Um, Two really great questions. So um, I'll start with the first one, I guess. Hinduism in Nepal, uh, question mark, right? What does that mean? Um, What are we talking about when, when we say Hinduism in Nepal? Um, and in large part, one of the, the many objectives of this book is to highlight the diversity of what we call Hinduism, which we you know, know very well is not a singular um, term that is homogenous. Um, and so too in Nepal, we have a really diverse set of practices and communities that constitute um, Nepal's Hinduism, but Nepal has um, for a very long time, positioned itself, the, the ruling elite have positioned Nepal as this uh, kind of pristine Hindu kingdom. Um, and in large part, one of the things that I wanted to accomplish in this book is to really kind of pick that apart and look at that process of setting up Nepal as um, as. Prithvi Narayan Shah, who was um, the political unifier of Nepal back in uh, was it 1769, um, he called Nepal the Asal Hindustan, the pure land of the Hindus. And this is really how Nepal's Hindu rulers, they've always had Hindu kings, um, though the population itself has always been very diverse, both in terms of who might consider themselves to ultimately fall under that category of Hindu, um, which of course has a much more recent um, origin in the colonial period, um, but also a huge Buddhist population as well as other local ethnic communities um, who subscribe to any number of different beliefs. Um, the groups that we kind of the the broad categories of Hindus in Nepal fall into two. The Nawars, um, who are the local, uh, the the indigenous inhabitants of the Kathmandu Valley. And the Kathmandu Valley was historically what we considered Nepal. Um, And so, you know, there are so many Nepalis today who live outside of the Kathmandu Valley, who when they say, I'm going to Nepal, they mean, I'm going to the Kathmandu Valley. Um, So that term still is very much associated with the Kathmandu Valley and kind of its immediate surroundings. Um, And so we have the the Nawars who were the indigenous population of that area. And the Nawars practice Hinduism, they practice Buddhism, and they practice some combination of both, right? And so there's the common kind of saying that if you ask a Nawar, are you Hindu or are you Buddhist, they'll say yes, right? Um, And so on the one hand, we have the Nawars. On the other hand, we have the Parvatiya or the hill Hindus um, who are high caste, who came from the hills, mostly the western, but also the eastern hills of Nepal, of Nepal, what we consider today, um, and were the ones who conquered the valley and then became the dominant social, political, religious uh, group in the Kathmandu Valley and modern Nepal as a whole. And the Padrutia Hindus, their heritage is from, uh, they claim their heritage from the Rajputs um, in northern India. Um, So Hinduism in Nepal is broadly constituted by these two main groups of uh, folks who would characterize themselves, broadly speaking, as Hindu based on the practices um, that they perform and the, the beliefs that they hold and, and what have you. But there's a lot of kind of picking that apart is an interesting process and a really important process to understand the ways in which Hinduism in Nepal both has a continuity with the, the different forms of Hinduism that we see elsewhere in South Asia on the Indian subcontinent, i.e. India, but it also has its own traditions and its own perspective and its own history. And I'm trying to, in reciting the goddess, trying to bring those into conversation with each other, um, because so often in academia, Hindu studies means the study of Hinduism in India. Um, and I'm trying to remind those um, who are interested that Hinduism goes beyond the borders of modern India, um, both historically and today. And so trying to kind of tease out some of those differences, the similarities, the tensions between the two, um, and how Nepal has historically played off of both of those, the tensions and the the continuities, um, and it's in a, kind of its process of defining its own form of Hinduism and kind of Nepali Hindu identity, right? Which again, needs to throw in the caveat that that is not necessarily one homogenous identity, that there's a lot of um, diversity within that. But nonetheless, um, sometimes we need to, to speak in these broad strokes um for for ease of of discussing them right um so i so that is what i would say i guess to start with in any case about hinduism in nepal um and yeah
1: i was just going to say that it's 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 one of one of the the many reasons that the study is fascinating because it broadens one's assumptions about Hinduism um, and where Hinduism may occur. And and on a a macro level, the Hinduism in Nepal versus the Hinduism in India is really occurring uh, within the Hindu world, within India, across state lines, across caste lines, across uh, sectarian lines. Um, And it's really a great study to see that, that, um, as you, as you as you mentioned in your subtitle really making of Hinduism in Nepal, which really could be an analog for the making of hinduism in general um and and one of i mean maybe you could say a word about you know what manuscriptology is or what it means or, or you know what did it, what is it you do with manuscripts and how you came up with your um so how you engage your data maybe say a word about that but 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 uh, and also the, the one key point in that um, that relates to this first question is the language of the manuscripts, isn't it?
0: Mm, right. Right. I mean, the, the I was really lucky in this project um, to have, well, it was both great luck and also a bit of a curse to have just a plethora of manuscripts to work with. Um, so one of the fascinating things about the Swissan tradition is that this goddess is... Um, only known via her text, the Susana Vrata um, And the text itself is only read during the month of Mag, so mid-February to mid-January every year. They read it from cover to cover. And um, many Hindus will not open the text at any other time of the year as soon as the month is over they do their final puja or worship of the text, and then they wrap it back up again and store it in a safe place um, only to be brought out again you know the next year um, and so kind of the the there, there are so many paradoxes um, within this tradition. Um, the one I'm thinking of at present being kind of the plethora of manuscripts that exist because most Hindus in Nepal have a copy of this text, and most families will have a handwritten copy of the text that has been passed down through the generations. Um, and yet, there's virtually no other documentation of the tradition whatsoever. Um, so it was really, um, just so very fascinating to be able to work with all of these different manuscripts. Uh, and, and I spent so much of my time looking through the archival collections at the National Archives. Um, and there are one or two other smaller archives in Kathmandu that also had collections, but also I spent a lot of time looking at copies of families in Nepal, specifically in the village of Sanku, um, where I did most of my ethnographic work, um, looking at copies actually owned and still read by Nepali families today. Um, and so these texts, and, and to give you a sense of what I mean by plethora, um, in the National Archives and the other small archives in town, there's about 700 manuscripts available. Uh, Not all of them are, you know, in pristine condition, of course. Um, And so, in kind of working through which manuscripts I could read, I had to kind of I developed criteria according to which I would uh, slim down my my options of manuscripts to read. And one thing included, you know, that they had to be complete, so they had to have a beginning, go from the beginning to the end, they needed to be undamaged enough to read in their entirety and they needed to have a date um, so that I could locate them um, temporally in Nepal's history. Now, this ruled out the vast majority of manuscripts um, that are still extant in these archival collections, um, but it still gave me hundreds with which to work. Um, And and you had raised the question uh, about language, which is so important. So this tradition originated among the Nawars, and for about the first 200 years of its history, it was passed down almost exclusively in the Nawar language, um, which is a Tibeto-Burman language, so differs rather significantly from Sanskrit and Nepali, which are Indo-Aryan, but Nawar is very much influenced, um, extremely so, by Sanskrit um, and today by Nepali as well. So there's a lot of vocabulary interchange and in fact The very oldest of the Sustani manuscripts is in Sanskrit, Um, but as I argue in the book, I think that that's more of a fluke than anything. Um, That, in part, because it is uh, a very nawarized Sanskrit. The Sanskrit is very corrupt, Um, and so it reflects kind of a greater knowledge of Nawar than it did Sanskrit, but an attempt at putting the Newar into the Sanskrit. Um, And then, as I said, for the next 200 years, it's almost exclusively in the Newar language. And then around, so the tradition I should say too, um, the oldest exit manuscript that we have is from 1573. Um, And it's not until uh, the early 19th century that the text is finally translated into the Nepali language. Um, And then it takes off in an entirely different sort of way um, with a much larger audience. At this point, the Parvatiya Hindus, the high caste Hindus from the hills um, had conquered the valley and were, you know, kind of establishing their hegemonic claim um, over pretty much everything. And so the translation into Nepali... Um, changed the tradition at that point to some degree, um, but so one of the things that I try and kind of tease out in the book is the dynamic between these three languages, Sanskrit, Newar, and Nepali. Um, and for me, this was uh, absolutely one of the most interesting aspects of the project and one that I really enjoyed as someone who loves languages and loves working with these manuscripts and thinking about how language is representative of so much more than just words on the page. Um, and while there have been some really excellent studies about each of those languages in the Nepali context, there has not been anything that brings them into conversation with one another. So I wanted to kind of use this textual tradition as a vehicle for having that conversation in for providing a case study, right? That literally was able to show the way that these three languages interacted and were representing different communities and how those communities were interacting and how this then most broadly mapped onto historical, political changes to the landscape um, that, a lot of you know all the kind of textbooks on Nepal well there really aren't any textbooks on Nepal but we, you know the standard historical studies of Nepal um, map out very clearly but this provides us with some some of the nitty and gritty about what was actually happening on the ground and the way popular movements isn't quite the right um phrase but the way that things were happening on the ground um, in, in, and in practice
1: so language is language is such a, a, a rich vehicle uh, above and beyond just uh, the conveyance of um, semantic meaning or ideas language um, so un- so unconsciously conveys culture it's so internalized we don't even realize the extent to which our culture is carried by and conditioned by the very words we use and it's, it's, it's very fascinating in this circumstance, of course um, what so just just to be clear, if one were to go and listen to what we we'll call the SVW, the Sustani Vatikata. For those of you who are interested, the SVW is the primary text the that's S- being studied. S- um, what's that?
0: I, I use the acronym SVK.
1: Sorry, SVK. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I am I, I definitely need some more sleep today. <laughs> SVK. But what, when it's currently recited, um, what language do people hear it in? Is it is a language is the language that they speak. And you mentioned that the Sanskrit manuscripts um, are probably anomalous. Maybe say a, a little bit about the, the Sanskrit cosmopolis and and, why, and the motivation that, the, that a medieval tradition would have to Sanskritize the text.
0: Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll say something about that first and then move to the modern period. Um, so the, the, the motivation for kind of Sanskritizing the tradition is very strong, right? Um, You mentioned the Sanskrit Cosmopolis, um, this notion of Sanskrit as this cosmopolitan language that traveled far and wide. It was accessible to huge swaths of South and Southeast Asians, um, but it was the language of the elite. Uh, and it was the language of the gods, right, as um, Shelley Pollock and, and others have um, discussed. And so that serves a certain purpose, right, and, and sets a certain standard um, for kind of, for the, again, quality is not the right word. The, the word I want is escaping me at the moment, but um, this, this notion of kind of the caliber of, the the writing it's a means of legitimating um the existence of the work uh, and really of kind of placing the text within this larger body of sanskrit literature right that was circulating um, on the indian subcontinent and in many cases beyond Um, and so there was definitely i would argue that drives there for Um, for some of those who were, you know, these religious actors who were involved in propelling the tradition, perpetuating it, transmitting it, um, to to make those claims. And the claim is made really from the very beginning of the tradition, um, insofar as in the colophons of every Swasani manuscript, regardless if it's in Sanskrit, Newar, or Nepali, Um, every final colophon has indicated that the text comes from a maha-prana. Usually usually these days, and for many centuries, it's been the skanda-prana that's been favored. Um, Originally, it was the linga-prana, the the susanivrata puja-vidis, the ritual instructions usually um, say that they hail from the padma-prana. Um, But so they're making these, establishing these claims of heritage to the Maha Sanskrit prana tradition um, that provides a certain amount of legitimation and authority to this very local tradition. Um, And so, but again, throughout its history, with all of these um, just so many man- manuscripts in existence and, and really the 700 or so that have been preserved at the archives, they stopped preserving them. They, it was an initiative uh, by the Nepal German Manuscript Preservation Project um, from roughly the 1970 to 1990 um, to preserve Nepali manuscripts by by microfilming them and they finally stopped collecting Swastani manuscripts because they had so many. So the fact that there's only 700, while that seems like a great number compared to, for example, um, in Nepal, one of the other very important local texts is the Swayambu Purana that talks about the origin of Swayambu Nak, this uh, great local Buddhist stupa. Um, There's only 100 manuscripts available. Um, so the fact that there are so many more in Susani, obviously there's lots of circumstances that could lead to the survival or destruction of any of these. Um, but there were so many in existence. And again, most of those would have been either in Nawar or in Nepali later on. And in terms of kind of the second part of your question, or I guess it was the first originally, Um, In terms of contemporary recitation of this tradition, largely the direction is is shifting towards Nepali language texts. And this is largely because the older handwritten texts that are written in Nawar were written in classical Nawar. And in the older Nepal script, which is to say not Devanagari, which is the most dominant and widely used uh, script in Nepal today. Um, so fewer and fewer Nepalese, Nawars in particular, can read this, this older language and the older script that the text is written in. And that forces them to turn to um, a modern version of the text and the version, the modern version of the text that is, ubiquitous um, throughout Nepal is a printed Nepali language version. Um, and this is for a number of, of, of reasons having to do with control over the printing presses um, when they first emerged. But Newar language, Sustani texts have never taken off at the printing press. There are a handful that have been put out in um, small numbers um, by individual you know, individuals publishing it themselves and distribu- distributing them themselves, but by and large, the the text that is widely available that you can see in stacks of them, and they're uh, bound in red covers, um, and they're literally stacks of them um, throughout Kathmandu during the festival season. Those are all written in Nepali, so it's an interesting thing to go to Nepali households these days to see kind of what they're reading and many times they'll bring out their older handwritten SVK text um, and they'll worship it but then they'll worship and ultimately read a modern printed Nepali language text. So
1: that's uh, that's fascinating for so many reasons Um, um, I quite enjoy obviously all of the 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 books we review here but, but this one it's there's so many parallels to uh the work that i do in in that for example i study um narrative text about a goddess figure that has a ritual tradition attached and yet there's so many differences in that the text is only recited in sanskrit <laughs> the efficacy of the telling of the story of the goddess has to be in this um, in, in the language of the gods, so to speak. So, I find that very fascinating. Um, so, we have, we have this, this intriguing um, syncretic religious space called Nepal. We have these stacks of manuscripts that you combine and make sense of. Um, and they all, the manuscripts obviously being those of the uh, SVK, and they pertain to a specific goddess, Sustani. So, tell us about the goddess.
0: Well, the goddess Sustani, um, she is she's interesting, and I have to admit that I my interest in her came rather late in this project. Uh, my I was the, the kind of my motivation for the project was a textual historical study of the Sustani Brata um about which no other work has really been done, looking at its history and development. And, and I was really interested in, in kind of those different steps and, and movements, shifts, different articulations, accretions, and, and what have you. Um, and, and so the goddess, my interest in her developed a little bit later in, in the process of, of writing this book. Um, she's, a, she's a notable goddess for the fact that she's very nonspecific, let's say um, so her name swastani swa right is means one's own um, stan w- place and the eye at the end feminizes it, right? So she's the goddess of one's own place. But that is delightfully unspecific. Um, very ambiguous about exactly what that means, right? As opposed to so many other goddesses who, whose name reflects a very clear attribute of their person, their powers, their place, right? Gauri, the pale one, Paroti, um, the goddess of the mountains, Um, so the fact that she is ambiguous, I, I argue is is intentional, right? That, that allows a lot of flexibility to this local goddess. And, and ultimately kind of my, my reading of her is one that shows how the nature of place, right. Is very, um, specific and it it's very referential and it and it changes it's not tied necessarily to a specific time and place but notions of place evolve and change based on a lot of different factors and so kind of what what i see throughout this whole project is the ways in which her as a goddess of one's own place is i mean it it reflects um, one's own place at the most kind of minute level of an individual and their place in life um, in their family and their village, their community. Um, but it, then it starts to balloon outwards. Right. And, and there's that possibility of that place being Nepal. So in, in the book, there's a wonderful illustration of the, the front cover of a modern printed Nepali, um, oh, that one might be Nehwar actually, one of the few Nehwar ones, where on the cover it has a map of Nepal and the word Swastani written across it in Devanagari, right, which is a clear visualization and articulation of that's, that's relating the goddess to kind of the nation in a way, the most explicit way I've ever seen um, in, in my work on her. But she offers that flexibility to be relevant at all of these different levels and at different time periods to note that those notions of place um, are in flux, right? And And I tie this back to kind of the making... Of Nepal in the making of Hinduism, because Nepal as we know it today has obviously changed considerably from what it was in the medieval period or, or before that, right? And so, kind of the way that she comes to represent Nepal and, and could be seen, you know, as, as from the Nepali perspective as our own goddess, right? As our goddess of this place, kind of distinguishing her from, and themselves, from that other place, namely India, right? Um, and so she's a, in, in the story um, itself, it's a vratkata, so it's um, a devotional votive rite um, and a story about the goddess, but it doesn't actually tell us that much about her origins per se, it tells us uh, just how to perform the vrat um, and she is she's called swastani parameshwari so she's this supreme being too that parameshwari indicates um but is is both of a benign benevolent goddess who's often associated um as uh shiva's consort but she also has you know a bit of an, an anger issue um and causes a bit of destruction in the story as well. And so she also reminds us in that moment of uh, afflicting and healing goddesses, right? Who are both the disease and the cure. So she's a, she's a complicated figure, but also curiously generic in certain, certain, way, certain ways. ways that I argue enables the local community to utilize her as needed.
1: Well, different
0: times
1: and contexts. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that's that's, that's fascinating about this project. Um, Can you hear me okay? What's
0: that?
1: Can you hear me okay?
0: Yes.
1: Oh, perfect. Uh, There's so much that's fascinating. uh, You know, what comes to mind is the distinctions um, of. uh, the literary theorist, in to echo the world behind the text, the world within the text, and the world in front of the text, and they're so very much fascinating with the world behind the text, and it's it's understandable why it's compelling to to tease out the history of this text and its various iterations and its its linguistic and, and cultural and political implications. Um, it, it, now, more to the heart of of the kinds of questions that I ask in terms of the world within the text, the literary devices, the characterizations. Yeah, I think you're really onto something. It's a it's a fascinating medley of um, uh, throughout Hinduism, are various goddesses, and invariably they will be conceived of as an as an aspect of one Paramehshwari or Mahadevi or a, a great feminine divine, um, but they'll invariably have very very specific character characterizations, biographies, um, you know, quirks, abilities, um, relationships with characters. And there is something about this goddess that uh, despite the things that are distinctive of her, there is something um, paradoxically generic. And the, the pun that came to mind in my brain as I was reading this is she's very much a placeholder, isn't she? Uh, she's a placeholder for, for placemaking itself, it seems. And in, in that that ambiguity that the, the it's um it's it it's certainly not a um it, it doesn't strike me as a lack of creative ingenuity at play. It strikes me as a, a very conscious margin and a space so that you can read into her and establish her in in the space in whatever epoch that is or whatever even geographical space. So I find that really really fascinating. I definitely perceive that. Strange paradox of a particular goddess who's also generic, almost like the the perfect uh, diasporic uh, goddess.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I think um, I'm glad that that comes through because I think that is very much the case. And and I really I I see it as very intentional insofar as this goddess seems to have emerged um, in the late sixteenth century, and her tradition gradually gradually grows and, and becomes much, you know, more and more popular and prevalent throughout Nepal. Um, and the time of her origin was a time when new goddesses were kind of emerging on the landscape in Nepal and, and elsewhere in South Asia. Um, so she's part of a broader trend, but again, stands out for that kind of lack of specificity that allowed her to maneuver as you say, in, into different spaces, um, in in ways that might not have been afforded to other goddesses who, whose identities and roles are much more specifically delineated.
1: You know, you, as you speak about her, you use a trope. Um, you use a trope in speaking about her, as you do in writing about her, uh, one that I have not. Um, I've generally not been uh, cognizant of or or, or used personally, but it's fascinating. You write about the goddess. Um, Rather than say the ways in which she's appropriated, you would phrase it the ways in which she moves from space to space. And it's really an engaging way of thinking about the deities having agency of sitting there for a month and receiving this and doing this. It's really fascinating to me. Um, I, don't, I don't know if this makes sense what I'm pointing to, but it's the idea, like, you, you present the goddess as having uh, sentience and agency in a way that I think is, is very compelling in how you write about her.
0: Well, thank you. I, I think, I mean, she, you know, there's lots of arguments to be made and about kind of the, the role of different religious actors um, who are involved in, in different religious practices and, and how they evolve and develop. Um, but I do think that it's important that, at least from a devotional point of view, that Nepali Hindus see her as being agentive, right? And, and they, in fact, worship the text as the goddess. She does not have a history of uh, graven images. She does not have a history of being depicted in statue form or wood carved or paintings um, that develops to a limited degree kind of later in her tradition but it's her as the text um, and so kind of the the agentive role of her as, a, as an actor as well as scribes and patrons and devotees um, are all kind of part of the same mix and, and you know and I don't want to overstate kind of her role because of course how can we judge that or assess that quantify it um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that from the perspective of those who are involved in the tradition she is very much part of um, how, how her tradition has moved forward um, throughout the centuries
1: I find, I find it quite useful um, one, one may if from an academic perspective, if you're doing scholarship on a, a religious tradition, one may think of it as perhaps obscuring what's happening in terms of speaking of the the object of worship as as an agent. But in this case, very much so, it, it really um, I think it really uh, it it sheds light, right? Like like thinking and speaking and writing about the goddess as agentive affords a level of insight into the lived religious practice that would not be there otherwise um, that's my sense um, speaking of the lived religious practice,
0: no.
1: certainly there's much to be said about this book and um, gender or women's lives or women 's roles um, and uh, I you know maybe I should leave it more more, more open for you to comment on that um, but one anecdote I, th- I found really fascinating, I think it was maybe in your second chapter when you were talking about the goddess herself was that if I'm not mistaken there were there were you had you had three trips where you were there and heard the kata being recited the the first one it was recited the second one it actually wasn't, but the third one it was recited by um a woman who. Who stepped up to do that, and so maybe you can comment on that anecdote, or maybe more broadly, the the the, the, the gendered roles or, or, or the the ways in which this tradition really um, is anomalous to, to a lot of um, gendered religiosity in South Asia.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, great question, and the the kind of vignette that that you're referring to um, historically, so. As I've already indicated, the, the text is recited over the course of a month. The modern printed Nepali language SVKs are conveniently divided into 31 chapters, so that's um, pretty cut and dry. The older handwritten Newar language ones are really varied in their length and chapters, maybe there, maybe not. Um, but historically, you know, families would read for themselves and for their neighbors, and, and obviously I'm meaning family writ large, so these are large joint families, um, reading together. So not necessarily every household may not have a copy of the Susani, but um, certainly a neighbor would, right? And you would, um, all signs indicates, based on current practice, that you would go and listen to it um, somewhere nearby. Now, the ritual component of the tradition um, is such that the the vrat, the ritual vow, can be observed either privately um, in your own home, or you can go and participate in a public communal performance of the vow in a, a village called Sanku, which is about 17 or 18 kilometers uh, to the northeast of Kathmandu. And for many, many years, uh, there's been this public communal performance of the Susani Vrat there. And historically there, um, the priest of the the ritual arena um, would read out loud a chapter a day. And in modern times, he would do this over a microphone. So one of the first times, um, I guess it was the first time that I had observed uh, the recitation in Sanghu was in 1999, and indeed, the priests read out um, a chapter a day over a microphone, which was very hard to understand because the quality of the equipment wasn't very good. Um, and then some point later, maybe it was in the mid2000s, um, I had gone back, and you know I've, I've, I've seen. I've spent a lot of time in Sanko over the years um, and would obviously try and go during the festival month. Um, and I think it was around 2005, 2006, when they were not reciting the text um, because the former priest had died and they hadn't found um, a new priest or the new priest that they had found didn't know Nehwar. He was a Parvatiya Hindu. Um, so he knew Nepali and Sanskrit, but he did not know Newar. And the copy of the SVK that was read every year um, in the ritual arena was in the Nawar language. Um, so he did not read it. So, you know, I took note of that. And then when I was back again, I think somewhere around 2014, um, a woman was reading it out loud. And I, and I befriended this woman. Her name's Amita uh, Srestha. And she was a lawyer, and due to both her conviction as a devotee of the goddess and someone who had performed the fast um, in Sanku years before, and as a lawyer who was familiar with reading lots of different handwritings, different scripts, handwritten scripts, um, she took it upon herself to read the the old text, um, and she did, and it was it was really quite something because historically it would of course be the senior male of the family who would read the text out loud. Um, and the text itself is very gendered. Um, it is in the eyes of many Nepalis, It is not in fact, very woman friendly. Um, it deals with a lot of domestic issues that includes child marriage the move from one's uh, natal home to one's husband's home and the challenges in that, motherhood, widowhood, um, all of these sorts of things, but in ways that are towing a very kind of conservative, orthodox, romanical line um, as far as women are concerned. Um, So it's, it's been an interesting kind of process for me over the years to understand what it means for this to be a woman's tradition because for so long, particularly in the early years of my research, one of the first things that, that Nepalese would say to me when they would find out um, that I was studying the signing tradition is, oh, that's a woman's tradition. And sometimes they would say this, you know, um, very pejoratively. Sometimes they would say this with pride. Sometimes they would just state it as, as fact. Um, but over the years, I've, I've begun to hear many more different kinds of conversations about the tradition um, that deviate from kind of what was the resounding uh, refrain about the tradition as a women's tradition, as empowering for women, and seeing the suffering that they go through and the story and that they overcome this suffering, right? Um, and most recently, and I, I wrote an article about this that came out in Sign's Journal for uh, Women in Culture and Society last winter that looks at contemporary feminist interpretations of the text, which really take the text to task for promoting gender discrimi- discrimination and um, lots of different ideas and tropes about women and practices related to girls that are harmful to them and given the popularity of the tradition in nepali culture nepali hindu culture that how how harmful this is um, in society today so there are lots of voices and perspectives on this that that really range from the very devout and this helps uh women understand how to deal with daily challenges in life and to overcome and to Um, to to be a good devotee to those who outright reject it um, as something that is not very productive for women today. Um, But in the book, I I, I don't get into the most contemporary period. Um, The book stops around the early 20th century, or excuse me, the early 21st century, because that's when the text kind of crystallizes into its contemporary form. And Hasn't changed much since then, whereas there were huge changes from the earliest text up to that point, um, and and so in in kind of the context of, of the book, it's focusing more on the ways in which kind of the women's question of 19th century India comes bubbles up into Nepal, and and you know I argue that a lot of the changes that we see in the text, and by changes, I mean the different stories that are added in. So the original SVK was just this local Nawar folk folktale um, about a mother, a son, the daughter-in-law, and the goddess. Um, but over, you know, two centuries, um, from the 18th to 20th century, it adds in a lot of Puranic, Mahapuranic stories about Shiva, Um, primarily some about Vishnu, but mostly Shiva, that that bring in more kind of Brahmanical discourses, um, and that includes Brahmanical gender discourses um, that position the texts into a certain discourse on women um, and their expected roles and practices um, that is then what's promoted throughout Nepal. So
1: there's clearly a very fascinating history and dimension. Um, just, just quickly, um, before I ask the next main question, did you, you mentioned that you, this study um, doesn't so much look at um, contemporary practices, basically since the text crystallized. Is that something you intend to work on at some point?
0: That's a good question. Um, so the text, both the, the meat of the text of, of um, my book, that is, does end, in, in terms of looking at the historical development of the types. it does end around the, 20, the early 21st century. Um, but because this is a living tradition still holding a place of primacy for Nepali Hindus today, I do incorporate um, ethnographic research that I've done over the years throughout the whole book. Um, that help illustrate kind of the ways in which different ideas and practices that we see historically have are playing out in the contemporary period. Um, So there's both ethnographic accounts from my own research and time in Nepal and in Sanku in particular, conversations that I've had with different um, Nepalis about the text and the story and their family practices but also draws a lot on contemporary media accounts so different newspaper editorials blog posts um, that bring up the society and and lots of different fashions um, so there is so while kind of the the histor the textual historical arc of the project is is really from the late 16th century to the early 21st century um, it still, I hope, gives enough of a sense of what's happening around the text in the, in the most contemporary period today. And I find, um, though, that these practices are continuing to evolve to some degree, or the conversation is evolving. The practices are, have not changed much. Um, so the article that I wrote for the, the journal Signs, in many ways, kind of served as an epilogue for the book, um, because it looked at the most contemporary present moment and reactions to the text and the the ritual practice in Nepal today. Um, But this is, you know, this project for me has such deep roots um, that I will probably to some degree, you know, follow the tradition moving forward. I'm very interested in seeing how Kind of in, in today's discourses on you know, the Me Too movement and secularism, which is new to Nepal, um, how these are changing conversations in general in Nepal and Nepali Hindu society among Hindus. Um, and so I, I, I am interested. It's not the main focus of my current project. Um, but it's something that I will always kind of have my my ear um to the wall as it were to and even more than that. I mean I will always have eyes on on this tradition to see how it continues to to move forward. Um because it's those changes in the tradition that have always really interested me. Um and how something that kind of came from obscurity became so central in Nepali culture kind of the heart of their Hindu society and so what does that mean moving forward and now that Nepal is officially in any case secular um and as we enter into you know the increasingly globalized world that we live in um, so I think there's I think there's going to be some interesting things to to observe moving forward um, in the years to come.
1: All sounds quite fascinating. So perhaps that's a good uh, lead-in to a question that I often end with uh, in these interviews, which is, why don't you tell us, what are you working on now?
0: So my current project um, really takes up my interest in gender and religion. Um, And this is something that undergirded my project on the Sasani tradition, and which led me to it in many ways in the first place of being interested in women's practices. Uh, And for me, kind of the Sustani tradition as a textual practice, a woman's tradition, quote unquote. Um, And in Nepal, um, which is a place that I feel very passionately about as well as very at home while there, that the Susanne project brought that all together very nicely. And kind of as that project came to the, you know, a close again with never a permanent ending, I don't think. Um, but my, my interest in kind of the contemporary period and contemporary conversations about women and gender and to see how notions of Women and gender are changing in Nepal today. So, and specifically again in Nepal as a place with such a deep, deeply historical Hindu worldview and deeply entrenched Hindu practices as the hegemonic norm against which all else is devised and judged and built. So my my current project is a look at sexual and gender minorities in Nepal, specifically kind of stemming from a conversation about the third gender um, in South Asia, which has very different uh, implications in the Nepali context than it does in the Indian context. But looking at these the third gender and other sexual and gender minorities in the Nepali context, to do an intersectional study of these communities with, in terms of religion, um, ethnicity, and sexuality. And to bring this into conversation with broader discussions about these communities globally, but also kind of broaden the conversation that has happened in the South Asian context for so long on hijras in India to move beyond both hijras and India. Um, to see what's happening elsewhere.
1: So sounds like equally fascinating work. Uh, we'll we'll have to have you back on the program when you publish that book. Um, so thank you very much for your time today. Uh, for those of you listening, we've been talking with Dr. Jessica Valentine Birkenholz, um, who is currently Associate Professor in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality and Asian Studies at penn state university and we've of course been talking to her about her exciting new book resetting the goddess narrative of place in the making of hinduism in nepal um until next time keep reading take care